please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. The title of the message this morning is Indictment of the Jews. Indictment of the Jews. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 2, let me ask you a question. What is an indictment? An indictment is a written accusation that a person committed a crime. That's an indictment. Now, an indictment isn't a trial. An indictment is where the grand jury would say, we've reviewed enough evidence and we believe that a crime has been committed and that that accused person should be tried. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the indictment of the Gentiles. Today, we look at the indictment of the Jews. And next week, we actually go with both Jew and Gentile, we go to trial with them. Because next week, God is going to bring the verdict. So this week is just the indictment. Now here's the question. Why were the Jews indicted? That made sense for the Gentiles to be indicted. If you remember from chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, clearly they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They lived out really evil deeds. In fact, the list of evil deeds that we find in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 32, is the longest list of evil deeds in the entire Bible. So no doubt, there's ample evidence for indicting the Gentiles. But why indict the Jews? Well, Doug Moo and his commentary helps us understand this a little bit. He says the following, Most Jews took for granted that Gentiles were outside the realm of God's saving favor. While the Jews were God's elected covenant people. So the Jews figured out, yep, you know what? Indict those Gentiles, Paul, because we're part of God's covenant people and they're outside of God's favor. They believed the Jews did that their covenant with the one true God shielded them from God's wrath and was a sign of their salvation. Here's the problem. Here's the reason why indict the Jews. Here's the reason why Paul, in the midst of indicting the Gentiles, with the Jews standing there going, yeah, yeah, you tell them, Paul, oh yeah, wrath of God is coming on you. He finishes with them and he whirls and he goes, and you. Here's why. Here's why. Because if the Jews were right, if their Old Testament covenant and the law was adequate to shield them from God's wrath, then they didn't need Jesus as Messiah. And Paul was anxious to preach the gospel in Rome to Jew and Gentile. And Paul was anxious to prove that the law and the Old Testament covenant were not sufficient for salvation. To inherit God's promises, the Jews must believe in Jesus. Look at this quote with me from Thomas Schreiner's commentary. Paul's purpose in 2.1 to 3.8 is to show that the Jews are not exempt from judgment. Indeed, to indict the Jews as sinners was even more important, for it was commonly accepted that Gentiles were sinners. What Paul needed to show was that Jews who possessed the law and a covenant with God, the Old Testament covenant, were not saved with these advantages. And friends, we must pay careful attention to this indictment because it may well speak to us. You see, 
The Jews suppressed the truth about God when they lived as if their possession of the law and the Old Testament covenant merited them God's saving favor apart from Christ. Hear carefully, apart from Christ. Now you may say to me, Al, I don't get it. How does this speak to me if you're a Christian? I mean, by God's sovereign grace, Al, by the way, I am now entering into a form of speaking called a diatribe which is what Paul's doing in this text. I am creating a fictional student or opponent, you. And I'm speaking for you, and I'm going to speak for you and for me. This is called a diatribe. This is what we have in this text. So you're saying to me, hey Al, why does this have anything to say to me? By God's sovereign grace, I've repented. I believe in Christ as the only grounds upon which God's saving favor has come to me. I believe that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that I could not live. We sang about that. I believe that Jesus then died on the cross to remove the wrath of God off of me and to give me the favor of God that he earned. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead to secure the forgiveness for my sins. And I believe he ascended into heaven and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and that he sent the Spirit to me to open my blind eyes and soften my hard heart so that I might repent and believe. How could, how could this, this indictment speak to me? And furthermore, Al, in case you haven't um, noticed, I'm not Jewish. So how in the world can I rely on the law and the Old Testament covenant as my salvation with God when I don't even have them? I'm outside the covenants. Remember, I was one of those guys outside the covenant. No hope, no promise, no people. That was me. I mean, I would never look to anything else for my righteousness other than Jesus. Hmm. Really? Um, Would possibly you be tempted to put your confidence in something or someone outside of Jesus for your access to God or your righteousness before God or your confidence with God? Now, yeah, you're not a Jew, so it wouldn't be the Old Testament law. Got it. But could could it be something else? Here's another way to ask it. Do you live every day by faith alone in Christ's righteousness alone as your confidence before God? Is this your functional thinking? Or could you be tempted, my dear friend, could we be tempted to think that after initially gaining our salvation before God by faith in Christ alone and gaining God's favor by faith in Christ alone, somehow we keep it through our obedience to the law? Could we, after years of walking with God, subtly or not so subtly, begin to think that we have God's favor because of our good deeds, which we should have, deeds of the Spirit, renew? Could we be guilty of adding some of our righteousness to Christ's righteousness in order to gain anything from God? And could we... Could we, smuggling in some of our own righteousness imperceptibly over the years, kind of result in us feeling a little bit superior to others? I mean, have you looked around lately in South Florida? Um, You could start thinking that, you know what? I'm maybe a little bit better than most here because at least I'm trying to live for God. Maybe I'm even better than most seated around me right now in this auditorium. Have we subtly felt like God owes us something? Because, you know, we are walking with God and we are being relatively good boys and girls these days. 
Has a little bit of an entitlement attitude crept into you recently? Well, that all can happen when we give in to the temptation to add anything to the righteousness of God, which is a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that God gives to us in Christ, that we receive by faith alone in Christ alone. When we give in to the slightest temptation to import some of our righteousness into that righteousness as, as the reason for having any confidence to approach God, then friends, we do fall under the same indictment. See, the question for all of us is whether we live every moment of our lives by faith in Christ alone as our righteousness, or do we import a little bit of our own righteousness into the equation? So with this in mind, let's pray. Let's pray and let's read together the indictment. And let's read with hearts that are open to God, the Holy Spirit, who is with us this morning to teach us from his word to lead us into the place of 100% faith in Christ alone as our righteousness so that we might not be self-righteous Christians, blunting the wonderful fruitfulness and power of the gospel in our own lives and in this church, misrepresenting God to a watching world, relying on our own righteousness for anything from God but that we would rely solely, 100%, in fit, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes, as Jim said, by grace alone. So let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would help me preach this message, and I pray that you'd help my friends listen to this message, that you would arrest every thought, every wandering thought, every wandering thing. Lord, that you would bring... Uh, clarity. Lord, I pray that if there are hearts here this morning that are hardened, they're darkened, they're ignorant of these truths, this has no meaning for them. They are here. Lord, thank you that they're here, but would you right now open their eyes by your spirit, Father, through the preaching of your word. <laughs> oh, may we rejoice as heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and comes to you. Only by grace, your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let us read the indictment, shall we, friends? Point number one. Here's the first charge in the indictment of the Jews. You judge others for what you do. You judge others for what you do. Let's read the indictment together, shall we? Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. You've got to remember, Paul's been indicting the Gentiles, and at this point, he, he wheels from indicting them. The Jews had come to the courtroom. They're sitting in the gallery. The Gentiles are on the docket. They're on the witness stand. Paul's indicting them. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. He's nailing them. Wrath of God's all over them. Jews are in the gallery going, yeah, yeah, that's right. They're jumping up. Yeah, yeah. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he goes, therefore, you have no excuse. Just finish telling the Gentiles they have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges for impassing judgment on another. Oh, you know the Jews were passing judgment on the Gentiles. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. See, the, the Jews' judgment wasn't wrong because they were discerning the wrong things the Gentiles were doing. They were right in discerning those wrong things. But the reason their judgment was wrong, the reason God was holding them accountable, is they were doing the very same things they were judging the Gentiles for doing. 
Read on with me. For we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? What's happening here is is, is God is saying, O Jew, you who thinks that the law and circumcision and the covenant will shield you from judgment by God, No, you are judging the Gentiles and you are being judged by the very thing you're judging them with, which is the law, because you're not doing it either. God is pointing out the Jews' inconsistency, their self-deception. Their very correct moral judgments that they received from the law, those judgments were indicting them because they weren't doing them. The word hypocrisy comes to mind. And I think... We can all be open to that indictment at times, can't we? Reading on, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know what I love about this? I love God's mercy. I mean, he's flat out indicting the Jews. When we get done here at the end of chapter 3, verse 8... The Jews are going to be hanging their head. They're just like, so why are we even Jews? Like, can I just leave now? But in the midst of this indictment, God says, oh, but my kindness is designed to bring you to repentance. My patience is kind of designed to bring you to repentance. My forbearance is designed to bring you to repentance. Oh, fellow Jew, Paul is preaching to them. May God's kindness here and forbearance bring you to repentance. And I plead that with you, oh, unbeliever, this morning. If you are here this morning, thank you for being here. We're all being indicted in one sense. But if you do not know Christ as your Savior, as Jim talked about, oh, I plead with you. May the kindness and forbearance and patience of God this morning reach your heart and draw you. Because if not, look at verse 5. This is what's coming, O Jew. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You judge others for the very things you do. Indictment number one. And if you don't repent... God's wrath is coming upon you. You, The fact that you're a Jew and you have the covenant, you have circumcision, you have the law does not help you. Why? Because you're not doing the law. Second indictment. Second charge in the indictment. You rely on your righteousness rather than God's righteousness. And this is the longest charge. If you were to get this indictment and read it in the local uh, newspaper of Rome, you would see that this is the longest one. This is going to be verses 6 all the way to verse 29. This is a very detailed indictment. And in essence, what it, it begins like this in verse 6. Please look at verse 6 with me. If you don't have a Bible, look on with someone else. Grab a Bible. We've got some in the table. Run and get the bread of life. Open it and read it. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. For he will render to each one according to his works. Here's the indictment. If you're going to rely on your own righteousness, O Jew... Just know this, that God will render to each one according to his work. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So here's the deal, Jew. If you want to rely on your own righteousness, fine. But just know this. God will 
give glory and blessing and honor and immortality to those who perfectly obey the law. That is the standard. But for those who do not, for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the law, what is coming is wrath and fury. So Jew, here's, here's the thing. If you want to rely on your righteousness, then what you're going to get is the wrath and the fury. But there's another righteousness of one who has obeyed the law perfectly, Jesus Christ. And if you rely on his righteousness, then you get eternal life. You get eternal life on the day of glory. Now, reading further, there will be tribulation, verse 9, and distress for every human being who does evil. Now, notice this. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. You remember what Paul's trying to do? He's saying, O Jew, you are not saved from God's wrath by being a Jew or having the covenants or having the law. Just like the Gentile won't be saved because of his wicked deeds, neither will you. So he, he echoes, actually, Romans 1, 16 and 17, where it says that salvation is in Christ alone for all who believe, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, God's wrath and judgment is for all who don't obey, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. I mean, this is the major point here in this text. From chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 8, is God shows no partiality. God judges all, Jew and Greek, based upon what they do. Based upon perfect obedience to the law. And, O Jew, do not rely on your own righteousness because you cannot perfectly obey the law. That's the bottom line. And he goes on to say in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. But he's basically saying is this, I'm going to judge the Gentile according to the truth that he has. Remember we talked about natural revelation, what you can know about God, that God's revealed himself in nature. And there's truth there that the Gentile knows, and he's denied man's conscience from what God has revealed. And you Jew... I'm going to judge you with the law that you claim is going to shield you from my judgment. No, it's not. You know what's right, but you don't do it. And then you judge them for doing the wrong. That's what he's saying in verse 12, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so he goes on in verses 14 and 15, and he speaks about how the Gentiles will be judged And how the Jew would be judged. And he gets down to verse 16. On that day, the judgment day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Their sin is defined by one thing. Failure to obey the law. And the indictment is that they were relying on their own righteousness which would fail them on that day when God judges the secrets of men's hearts. And friend, if you're here today and do not believe in Jesus and do not live by faith in him alone, then your righteousness, your philosophy, your worldview, the way you think you should live your life will fail you on the day when God will judge the secrets of all men's hearts by Christ. Now look at verse 17. He picks back up with the Jew. And this is a key verse, because remember what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to say that only the gospel can save you from God's wrath. Only the gospel can give you God's saving favor. And your covenantal advantage, dear Jew, is worth nothing before God unless you obey the law perfectly. 
That's what verse 17 and on is saying. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. These are all good things, by the way. It's good. It's good to rely on the law, just not for salvation. It's good to boast in God. It's good to know his will. The law reveals his will. The law is good. It's good to approve what is excellent. They approve what is excellent. They said, listen, what the Gentiles are doing is horrible. But they didn't do it. Look at this. Look at verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind... The Jews were meant to be a guide to the blind. Remember, God chose them as a people because he was going to reveal through them the Savior and the law was to lead them to that Savior, but they were to be a guide to the blind around them, those Gentiles all around them. A light to those in darkness. They were to be a light to those in darkness. An instructor of the foolish. They were to instruct the foolish Gentiles who were serving pagan idols. A teacher of children. In a sense, the Gentiles were like children. Having the law... In the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, they had all that. They, none of that was bad. None of that was wrong. They weren't being di- indicted for that. Here's where they were being indicted. Verse 21. If you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Here's where hypocrisy is coming in. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I'm not sure they were literally robbing temples. I think that might just mean idolatry is wrong. And are you living for the benefits of idolatry in a sense, idols in your heart? I don't know that Jews were running around robbing temples. They may have been, but it's what's in your heart, the idols of the heart. Now here's 23 and 24, devastating indictment. You who boast in the law, you actually dishonor God by breaking the law. I've told you to go and be a light to the nations and boast in my law, but you're dishonoring my law by breaking my law. And then verse 24 is heartbreaking. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Oh my, you were called to be my witnesses in the world, to bear witness of me, and instead of bearing witness of me, because of you, people are blaspheming my name. That's a serious indictment. And it's all because they relied on their own righteousness. It wasn't the law. The law was good. But it was their reliance on the law as their righteousness before God. They stopped one covenant short. It's all one covenant. But they thought that the covenant would shield them from God's wrath. And it will. The new covenant. See, not only did the Jews break the laws that they judged the Gentiles for breaking, but they didn't believe in Jesus. The one who came to complete the covenant that they thought would shield them from God's wrath. That's why God's name was being blasphemed. That was why God's name was being blasphemed. And that's how they were not fulfilling their missionary call. Oh, friends, This is where the indictment could fall upon us. God has a call on our lives. And if we rely on our own righteousness even a bit, we'll miss our missionary call. We'll miss it. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Yeah, you boast in the covenant you have with God. That covenant is represented by circumcision. Sure, circumcision has value if you obey the law. It doesn't if you break it. 
But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, the law, and circumcision, the covenants, but break the law. And now in verse 28 is where he's going to say, it's not your righteousness, but it's the righteousness of Christ. Here in verse 28 is where God is going to define his people. Who is a Jew? Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Oh, he is echoing here Jeremiah 31. He is saying, listen, the surgery you need isn't on your body to be a person of covenant, a person of God, a, a, a child of God. That's not what makes you a Jew. It's the surgery in your heart. And you're denying the very one who came to do that heart surgery in your unbelief of Jesus as Messiah and relying on your own righteousness. And you're breaking the very law that represents God. So he's saying, a true Jew is one who's circumcised in his heart. Dear Jew, your sins are no longer atoned for in the temple by your sacrifice. Your sins are atoned for on the cross in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what he's saying. He's calling them to repentance. He's defining his people. He's stripping away from his people their confidence in anything else, in themselves, in the law, in the covenant, in the circumcision, in anything else. And God has to do that to us because in our hearts, we're all, we're all closet stealers and smugglers of, of, of righteousness that has no bearing before God into Christ's righteousness. We all do this to some extent. In a moment, I hope to help you see that and help me see that so that we stop it. See, this, this, this circumcision of the heart, look at it again in verse 29. A, and circumcision B is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. This circumcision of the heart is what Jesus inaugurated when he came. Remember, Jesus came and he brought in a new age. It's now the kingdom age. It's the age of his kingdom breaking in on our world. It's called the age of the Spirit. No longer the letter of the law. The law is good. The law can't give you life. The law cannot forgive your sins. The law can't make you obey the law, but you need to obey the law. So therefore, the Spirit comes and says, one has obeyed the law, and I'm going to circumcise your heart. You're going to repent of your own righteousness, bow your knee, as Jim said. I love that this morning, Jim. And you're going to say, Jesus, you are my righteousness. That's what's happening. And oh, I beg everyone in this room, who has not had that heart surgery, to cry out to God right now that you might submit to His Spirit as He moves amongst us, bringing light and understanding to your darkened and ignorant hearts and minds, that you would see the work of God, that the Spirit would circumcise your heart, and that yes, when the Spirit does that, we are changed people. Friend, may you agree with the judge before he brings you to court next week for your trial. 
And may those of us who have had heart surgery live by faith in Christ's righteousness so that we're, we, we would not be guilty of misrepresenting God to others. And that's the third charge in the indictment. Charge number three is you've misrepresented God. You misrepresent God. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> I'm back to diatribe. I could just imagine the Jews listening to this. It would be me, okay? <clears throat> I'm that guy because I have a big mouth. I would jump up and say, look at verse 1, then what advantage do I have as a Jew? Especially if you're a Cuban Jew. You'd be doing this, okay? <laughs> we actually have a Cuban Jew in our midst who loves God with all his heart. Yeah, so, so, so the, Jew, the Jew says, now this is, di- we're back to diatribe. Remember, Paul is now arguing with this opponent. What advantage has the Jew then, Paul? If all this stuff is of the heart, inward, and the law, and this, and now Jesus, I don't worship at the temple, but in Christ, what advantage has the Jew? Or what, or what is the value of circumcision? It's a natural question, is it not? Paul poses this question to make his argument. Paul probably had made this argument many, many times when he preached the gospel throughout the then-known world and he would get to a synagogue and he would preach Jesus Christ, salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And by the way, the Gentiles don't even need to be circumcised. The Jews would go, what? People will sin all over the place if that's true. So this is probably one of his arguments that he's preaching again to this, in this diatribe against this Jewish opponent. And Paul answers in verse 2. God answers in verse 2. Well, there's much in every way. There's an advantage to being a Jew. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Again, it wasn't the law that was bad. It was their reliance on the law for their righteousness that was bad. The Jews are important. God chose the Jews to to reveal the law, to reveal the prophets. God said, through you, the Messiah will come, the seed of the woman. And then he says to Abraham, through you, the nations will be blessed. It wasn't Abraham. It was the Messiah who would come through that seed. And he preserves Israel all throughout history. Little Israel, sinful Israel, at times unknowing, ignorant, willfully rebellious Israel. And he preserves his people. And we read the story and these pages and these pages come alive because they're about a savior who's coming. And he's saying to the Jews, there's great advantage. The truth came for you. You just haven't believed it yet. You've stopped at the old. You've got to go one more. Stop relying on your righteousness. It's the one who came, who's the only one who's righteous. That is what would shield you from my wrath. They failed to obey the law. They failed to believe in God. No time to go into great detail, but if you will notice, put your finger on four contrasts in these sections here. Four contrasts. As the Jew continues to argue with Paul in verse 3, and by the way, this argument is picked back up in Romans 9 through 11. So, if you want to sneak peek at kind of how to interpret this, jump, interpret this, go to Romans 9, verses chapters 9 through 11. Remember, this was a letter probably meant to be read at one sitting, which you should do, by the way. 
And Romans 9 through 11 will help you understand Romans 3, 1 through 8. Because Romans 3, 1 through 8 is very difficult, eight verses to understand. But pick up a few things here. So, so I'm continuing to argue with Paul. Uh, well, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? <laughs> Notice the contrast. They were unfaithful. God is faithful. So basically, here's the argument. Hey, what about those promises? I mean, is God still going to give the promises even though they were unfaithful? Is God fair? Go to Romans 9 to get the answer. If it's, if it's all up to God, if I cannot choose God, but rather He chooses me, which is true, then why am I blamed? He goes on to say here, verse 4, <clears throat> by no means, <clears throat> that's that Greek term, may get it all, which is as close to cursing as Paul ever gets. No. Blank no. By no means. Let God be true. Here's another contrast. Though everyone is a liar. This is really true, guys. I am, I am faithful to my promises to Israel. My saving righteousness and my judging righteousness work together. I know, difficult. Let's move on. And then he quotes Psalm 51.4. Even more difficult. What is Psalm 51.4 doing here? Well, God knows, and Paul knows, and we're studying about it. Verse 4, by no means let God be true. Everyone were, everyone were a liar. As it is written, now he's quoting Psalm 51.4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. And then, then the Jew, Alpino, jumps up again. But if our unrighteousness serves to show, show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? In other words, hey, if my unrighteousness is showing the righteousness of God, if my unrighteousness and relying on my own righteousness reveals Jesus as the only righteousness, why am I still being judged for my sin? Again, go to Romans 9 to hear the answer to that one. And Paul goes back. By no means. There's another meganitah. This is a spicy little conversation. And he goes, wait a second, Jew. You hear what you're saying? You're saying that your sin actually reveals God's goodness, therefore your sin shouldn't be judged. And verse 6, he says, if that were true, then God couldn't judge the world, the Gentiles. And you know they're supposed to be judged. And the Jew goes, yeah, you're right. (laughs) And then verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth, there's another fourth contrast, my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying? What's happening here, this is the age-old argument about, about grace. If you preach grace, you will open the doors to let people sin all they want. If the grace of God is seen most clearly on the backdrop of the sinfulness of man, then, oh boy, if you preach grace, people are just going to sin all over the place. If they know God chose them, if they know that God's going to cause them to persevere, if they know all these things, it's just going to open the doors for for sinning all over the place. That's what Paul's being charged with here. And he's saying, no, it's not. This is a new work of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't produce sin. When the Spirit circumcises your heart, it doesn't lead you to want to sin more. It leads you to want to obey God. But there's also a fight with the flesh. Romans 6, 7, and 8. We'll get to that. What's God's final word to them? Last words of the text. Their condemnation is just. Okay. Slow down. Slow down time. There's the theology. 
God's indictment of both Jew and Gentile points us to his righteousness in Christ. The only righteousness that is able to save us. The righteousness that comes from God. An alien righteousness that can only be received by faith in Christ. Here's the appeal. Here's where it gets practical. Got five minutes to get practical. But pay attention. Lean up. Lean in. Pay attention. This is the point. The indictments have come down, the warrants have been issued, the arrests have been made, and the trial is scheduled for next week, Romans 3, 9 to 20. But for this week, the question remains, dear friends, will an indictment come back on us for functional self-righteousness? Functional self-righteousness. That is, for us trying to smuggle in any little bit of our righteousness in an effort to earn God's favor. And we're all capable of trying to sneak in a little bit of our own righteousness as a basis for our confidence before God. But our righteousness has no value. It is a counterfeit righteousness that misrepresents God to the world. And God will expose it on the day we bring that counterfeit $100 bill on the table. God says, no, it's no good. It's no good. When it comes to pleasing, holy, perfect God, whose standard is perfect obedience to his law. And that remains. Only one has done that. Only one has done that. Our self-righteousness does not afford us one ounce of confidence before God's holy presence. It garners not one iota of favor before him. On the contrary, our self-righteousness, oh church, hear this, it renders, it renders the gospel temporarily fruitless in your lives, in my life, and in the life of our church. And for that reason, we must expose it and repent of it. To that end, I want to conclude with some very helpful diagnostic questions from our friend Jerry Bridges that can expose our self-righteousness so that we might repent of it and cling to God's righteousness in Christ. We're going to post these on the website, Bentley. (laughs) So there's a ton of them, all right? So don't freak out. If you want to write them, write them great, but... Let me just go through these. So these are some questions to help us diagnose our own souls. Do you tend to live by a list of do's and don'ts? Is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't as high as yours? Do you feel you're better than most people? Do you assume that practicing spiritual disciplines should result in God's blessing? Think carefully about that one. If God's blessings are based on the perfect work of Christ, I'm not saying obedience isn't important. I'm not saying spiritual disciplines aren't important. Oh, they are, friend. Are you really earning God's blessings? Or are you just living out of the blessing that God has given you in Christ? This is who you are. This is your new life. You live and breathe his word. Five, has it been a long time since you've identified a sin and repented of it? Do you resent it when others point out your spiritual blind spots? Do you readily recognize the sins of others, but not so much your own. Do you have the sense that God owes you a good life? Do you get angry when difficulties and suffering come into your life? Oh my, that one, that one's, that one's gotten me a lot recently. When things just don't go right, traffic jams, fender benders, whatever. Big one, 10. Do you seldom think of the cross? Do you live in a constant sense of guilt due to unfulfilled, sorry, 11. My bad, go back to 11. I read them out of order. 11. Do you feel better about yourself and your relationship to God when you're obedient compared to when you're disobedient? This is a huge one, guys. 
Because if you feel better about yourself when you're obedient, then somehow you've snuck in a little bit of your righteousness. Your relationship with God cannot be based on your obedience. Your obedience is imperfect at its best. Does that mean you shouldn't be obedient? Of course not. That's that lie that someone accused Paul of there back in Romans 3. But it can't be the basis of your relationship. It cannot. Let's go to 12. Do you live in a constant sense of guilt due to unfulfilled expectations of yourself? Now this one, this one is the flip side of the same proud, unbelieving coin. One side of self-righteousness. When this church gets more people like me who really are together, I attend everything, I give, I serve. I'm here in the morning. I'm cleaning this place up. I go to group. When we get more people like me, we're really going to start, we're, we're going to start preaching the gospel. Who is that person over there? They look a little weird. That's one side of the coin. Okay? The other side is, oh, woe was me. I'm just so disappointed with myself. A constant sense of guilt. And by the way, some of us are just bang against the, the borders of both of them. We never go right down the middle of the street of beautiful, godly holiness. We're just boom, 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 you know. Um, if you always live in a sense of guilt and somehow, um, you know, you just never measure up, you're just, you're puddle glum, okay? You're, that may not relate anything to you. You're just a droopy, down person and, and you just stink as a Christian all the time. And every time someone talks to you, it's just, oh man, I just really... I just would invite you to, to think this way. Do you think too highly of yourself so that you think you should be way, way, way more than what you really are? And that could just, that could just be that. And you're not trust. We should be joyous people. doesn't mean we can't grieve over our sin, that we have the righteousness of God in Christ. But if I smuggle in a little bit of mine... I could be that guilt-ridden person all the time. Do you realize that persistent guilt is the child of self-righteousness toward God? That's a tough one. All right, next quote. We're bringing this home. Jerry Bridges. Although we primarily depend on the righteousness of Christ, we like to think that we've added some of our own merit for good measure. But this is an insult to the gospel. What's at stake is the gospel. What's at stake is Christ's redeeming work on the cross. Was it or was it not necessary? Or was it just a little bit necessary? Is it a condiment in the meal, or is it the meal? We like to think we've added some of our own merit for good measure, but this is an insult to the gospel of the cross. We treat it as though our personal performance can add to its immeasurable and all-sufficient merit. We have two enemies, two sides of the same coin, self-righteousness and persistent guilt. And they both have the same weapon that destroys them. The righteousness of Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that kills our self-righteousness and our judging of others for doing the very things that we do. It is the righteousness of Christ that allows us to look at our own hearts and repent of our hypocrisies and turn in our humility to Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that brings our proud superiority to the foot of the cross, dear friends, to see that here the ground is level. Here is where we all have been accepted by Christ. And here is where we accept one another in Christ. Here is where we build together. Here is where we bear gospel fruit. As a church... Here and only here. The goal of this text is to indict us all as sinners. 
so that in the courtroom of God's justice, we would cry out for the one righteousness, the only righteousness that can save us from God's wrath, the only righteousness that produces gospel fruit, that brings glory to God, the righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus, given to us by God, received as a gift from God by faith alone and Christ alone. Let us pray, and then we're going to stand and sing of the wonderful cross. Bow your heads, please, in reverent prayer. Please be as still as you possibly can be. God is among us. As the worship team joins me here, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would still every heart right now, that you would still every fidgety body right now, that you would would capture every wandering mind right now, that you would open every closed eye right now, that you would give life to every dead heart right now, that you, O God, would open and unstuff every deaf ear right now. This is a holy moment, Father, because your holy word has been preached in a place where your people, your your holy people, hagios is that Greek word, your saints are gathered. We have this holiness as an imputed righteousness, and we're becoming who we are. And I pray, God, I pray you save souls right now. God, I pray that you would open eyes of youth or teens that could care less about what's been going on and suddenly you would arrest them. Lord, you would come. You would wheel and indict and they would fall to their knees and repent. Lord, not by human hands or human voices or human words, but by the hand of the Holy Spirit written on the hearts of men and women. The Word of God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us, forgive me for our self-righteousness, whether it's the boastful self-righteousness or the doom and gloom, living in guilt all the time. They both have one thing in common. It's all about me. It's not. It's about you. Focus us now to look at the cross as we sing the wonderful cross. Stand, please. Mm -hmm.